On this podcast, we will seek to examine the stories, technology, history, and ideas that define mankind. We hope that you will join us on this journey as we quest for what makes us human. Hello, and welcome to the inaugural episode of What Makes Us Human. I am J.R. Parks. And I'm John Lindemann. And this is episode one, The Battle of the Bulge. Talking about conflict today, right? That certainly was a, uh, part of a major conflict, World War II. What's your favorite conflict? I've really lately um, enjoyed studying on World War One. It was it's something that I wasn't as familiar with, especially I think here in America. We we kind of get we kind of skip over it almost. We talk obviously America kind of came in at the end, and uh, so I think it, it, in a lot of cases it kind of gets skipped over a lot. Um, but uh, actually, because of another podcast, um, I became interested in World War One. So that's that's uh, probably up there right now. But it it shifts. So for a long time, it was um, it was the Civil War. So oh, me too. It kind of varies a little bit. Yeah. So you've been into uh, if you're into World War One, you've been looking into uh, Gavrielle Princip. Is that Ga- his Gavrielle Princip. Princip. Is how I hear it pronounced. Okay. I, I, don't, I don't. I don't know. I'm not from the Balkans, but wild stuff. It, it's fascinating how uh, how things just worked out. You know, uh, we, we won't get into that story, but perfectly you know, wrong. Perfectly for him to be exactly after a, a botched attempt for him to be exactly where he needed to be to yeah. shoot Archduke Franz Ferdinand. So, as you can tell, we're nerds. We hope you're a nerd too. Uh, J.R. Parks is referring to uh, an assassination attempt. That went completely wrong, and then Gavriel went and sat in a coffee shop with his tail between his legs, and they escorted the people right by him as a uh, emergency route to get him away from the assassinators. Yeah, well, trying to go back to basically City Hall to complain, and they they turned down the wrong street in front of this coffee shop, and they go to put it in reverse, and you know as. uh, as things go with automobiles in that time period, when they go put it in reverse, the car stalls out. So, you know, here he is with his intended target slightly below him in an open car, you know, JFK <laughs> much. Yep. Um, and uh, the car stalled out. I mean. And bam. Yep. And uh, then you get World War One, which yep. if you didn't have World War One, you can make a very strong argument you would have never had World War Two. Right. So it feeds right into our subject today. And I... Tip my hat to you, sir, for letting me go with the word assassinator instead of assassins <laughs> earlier. I uh, didn't even cross my mind. Well, there it is, and it'll stay in the program, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> so today we're talking about <clears throat> a major, major conflict, the greatest conflict the world has probably ever known, um, World War II. I was just doing some general studying at the beginning of this whole thing. Um, talking about the Battle of the Bulge, and of course, you, we have to say, you know, there, there may be somebody who says, well, what was World War II? Could you just in a nutshell describe World War II? And I'm, I was trying to think, how on earth could you, within five minutes, break that down? So uh, I think we're going to attempt that at the start. It's the world's greatest conflict. Uh, it involves... Super air power, super tank power, millions and millions of people. I believe more civilians died than military personnel. Um, it involves a holocaust, 
several holocausts. Um, it involves two nuclear bombs, vast treaties, vast invasions, the, one of the greatest invasions of a city ever with Stalingrad. Um, the, the whole debate about, well, should the United States invade Berlin or should Russia invade, or excuse me, the Soviet Union invade Berlin? Um, so, JR, I will put that, throw that ball at you, break down World War II for us in a nutshell. Well, it's certainly a very mechanized um, version of warfare. And, um, you know, that the, the technology, the mechanization allowed for things like, you know, Blitzkrieg um, that sort of kicked it off. It, this, this, you know, intense, um, fast method of, you know, invading and conquering, you know, whole countries. Um, but uh, it, it, it's definitely, you know, World War One. you kind of get, like, you start to see the technology of the 20th century. You know, the technology sort of starts to take over the battlefield, yep. especially towards the end of World War One. Right. Um, but World War Two, you see all that, you know, all that tech perfected. And um, it's, it's, it's a slaughter. I mean, there's... It's it's not the as it's not the defensive trench warfare that World War One is by by then you know they figured out hey you don't um, you don't charge machine gun nest <laughs> with you know hundreds of men that doesn't end well right um, but uh, it, it's it's the technology has allowed for I mean just massively intense warfare so on September first nineteen thirty nine Hitler invades. Poland. Uh, by June 22nd of 41, Germany has invaded the Soviet Union. And then in December of 1941, uh, Japan attacks Pearl Harbor and awakens a sleeping giant, as the saying went. By 1942, Japan has been halted in the Pacific Campaign at the famous Battle of Midway. Have you ever seen the original Midway movie? I don't, I don't know that I have. What? You're kidding, right? I don't know oh, that you gotta I have. watch that. Uh, by 1943, the Allies have invaded the Italian mainland, and Germany gets defeated in northern Africa and Stalingrad. And by 44, uh, German-occupied France has been invaded by the Western Allies, and the Soviets have regained momentum. And of course, it includes with the fall of Berlin to the Soviets and Hitler's suicide and German surrender, which is on May 8th of 45, and then eventually Japanese surrender on August the 15th of 1945 after Hiroshima on August 6th and Nagasaki on August 9th with the bombs being dropped. So in a nutshell, World War II. All right, The Battle of the Bulge. Have you ever seen that movie? Actually, I don't believe I have. Jared. I've, I've, not, uh, I've not seen a lot of older war movies. Okay. I have to, I have to say. Um, Bridge Over the River Kwai? I have seen that one. I okay. believe it's been a while, but okay. Sunday afternoons, my dad was always watching uh, the old war movies. Bridge of the River Kwai is a good one, although it's got some. Uh, there's some conflict about that movie and how they portray the uh, treatment of the prisoners versus the reality. You know, that's that's probably true of, of about any war movie. Yeah. You know, or any movie based on real events, for that matter, just disagreement on how much is factual versus how much is um, added to for whatever reason. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. So December 16th, 1944, uh, we find ourselves at the Ardennes Forest, which is uh, kind of along the border of Belgium and Luxembourg. Uh, if you want to access Google Maps, you can check that out um, because I couldn't quite just picture the border of Belgium and Luxembourg, so I had to look that up. Um, but the Ardennes Forest region was a very densely forested area uh, with a lot of hills and valleys. The highest hill in the Ardennes is 2,277 feet. So when you add all these hills and uh, the Meuse River and the tributaries that come from it into this forested area, you can't really drive all this mechanized warfare right through there. So the Allies felt that this was a good place to kind of put a few guys here and there. It was, it was sparsely guarded, I guess we'd say. Um, and the Germans knew this, and so this is where, since they were back on their heels in the war, this is where they decided to push. And I think it's fair to say that the number one goal of the Axis powers at this point, um, at the bulge, creating this bulge in the Allied line, their number one goal was to regain the port of Antwerp. And... In any war, if you can get a port and you got river access uh, and you can get some high ground, you're obviously in the lead. Um, so they wanted to get the port of Antwerp back from the Allies. And once they punctured through there, create the bulge, puncture through, and then turn around and split uh, the Allies into four sections and then devour them. Um, thank God that did not work. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, there's there's a couple of things that, that kind of play into this. So, you know, after... In, in preparation for D-Day and then in their drive across France, the Allies had destroyed much of the French French railway, so that you know, made it difficult to to move supplies. But even apart from moving them, you mentioned Antwerp. They had only recently captured Antwerp, and that was the first real usable deep water port that the Allies had since they had broken back into Europe uh, at D-Day, and so. And it was just recently becoming usable. So the Allies are suffering from, you know, major supply issues here. There's, you know, there's a lot of problems with, you know, just the food and the ammunition and all the other things that go into, you know, keeping an army in the field and fighting. And, and the Allies were really hurting here. And the Axis powers, Germany was hurting too. The Panzer divisions that are involved in pushing this bulge into the Allied lines, um, those Panzer divisions, I've heard a couple of interviews with uh, some men from the Americas who uh, fought there, and um, they were saying that luckily, if you were in a Panzer tank, you only had probably 50 miles worth of fuel. And they were told by their German leaders that those, uh, the German boys were told by their leaders that you're going to have to get fuel from the people you conquer, basically. So... But it's good that the Allies, they were hurting too. So the Germans hit them. Everybody's hurting for fuel. Everybody's hurting for bullets. Everybody's hurting for coats and gloves and boots. Um, so in a way, that, that benefited the Americans a lot. Yeah, and this is, this is a massive attack. You know, they initially hit with, with 30 German divisions across this 85-mile you know, area in the Ardennes Forest. Wow. Um, 
you know, that's 410,000 men, over 1,400 tanks, tank destroyers, assault guns, uh, 2,600 artillery pieces, 1,600 anti-tank guns, and over 1,000 combat aircraft, as well as, you know, armored personnel carriers and, and other things here. Um, and then they, you know, they pretty quickly, within a couple weeks, brought in even more troops and more uh, tanks. And so this was, this was a massive undertaking, and it was... It was, you know, kind of caught the Allies off guard. Uh, you mentioned, you know, sort of some of the reasons why they weren't um, kind of expecting a big attack in this area. The other things that kind of played into that is the Ardennes force provided some level of cover. Yeah. Um, the weather was not allowing, you know, reconnaissance aircraft to, to fly uh, very much. So that, that certainly affected things. That's a big deal. Yeah. And, and the weather's going to play a big role here. Uh, and we'll, we'll get into that, but... Um, and then the other thing is, you know, those familiar with World War II, you know, maybe familiar with Project Ultra and, and how, how the Allies are reading German communications. And, yeah. uh, but by this point, in this area, the Germans aren't dealing as much with radios because they have, you know, telephone lines, telegraph lines. They're kind of in their home turf. So them not using radios kind of limit the effectiveness of Project Ultra to to know also what's going to you know, be able to decrypt these messages and know, you know what's the German troop movements, what are they planning. Hmm. So 5.30 a.m. on December 16th, 1944, the Germans let their presence be known. Uh, they start shelling the Allied lines. And from what I've read, uh, the, and I've been listening to a couple podcasts on this as well, Evidently, the weather was so bad, it was so foggy, it was so snowy, uh, just horrible weather, that you could hardly see 20 feet in front of you. And all of a sudden, uh, in the forest, you have the trees being shelled about 10 to 20 feet up. So they weren't necessarily shelling the men, they were shelling the trees way up above them. And you have these pine trees just being cut in half and then falling down on top of you. And the ground was so hard, that uh, the Allied men, uh, they said that they could only dig about four inches in, which is hardly anything. So you're basically laying on the ground, and they just grabbed anything they could find to lay on top of themselves for cover to try to keep all this wood shrapnel. You don't think of wooden shrapnel in a warfare, uh, but all this wooden shrapnel from uh, getting into them from killing them. Uh, and it just went on and on and on. And nope, you couldn't really bring in Allied air power to help because the weather was so bad. Yeah, and I mean, freezing rain, thick fog that prevented the aircraft, um, you know, deep snow drifts. They were, they were record-breaking temperatures, you right. know, for this area of this, this winter. And just the American troops reported more than 15,000 cold-related injuries, like mm. trench foot pneumonia and frostbite that mm. winter so you know absolutely horrific weather uh, to try to fight a war in uh, the other thing is kind of prior to this the germans had spread a lot of misinformation um, as they were retreating back you know they had changed road signs and they had started they had, in preparation for this they had dropped a, a, a number of uh, specialized troops behind the allied lines and these troops were, were dressed like Americans, and they had, they had hung around 
the the prisons where they could hear the American uh, POWs to the point that they even picked up like not just English but like American slang to try to be convincing and you know then spread misinformation behind the lines posing as Americans. So they're creating chaos. Yeah, absolutely, and it 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 became so bad that the troops started asking suspected you know Germans to answer American trivia questions. Um, General, General Omar Bradley uh, once reported that uh, three times he was ordered to prove his identity. He said, quote, the first time by identifying Springfield as the capital of Illinois, the second by locating the guard between the center and the tackle on a line of scrimmage, <laughs> the third time by naming the then current spouse of a blonde named Betty Grable, end quote. So, I mean, if you even got guys like Omar Bradley being, you know, questioned like, you know, are these Americans or are these German infiltrators? You know, it must have been a real, there must have been a real problem with this. I'd have been shot. <laughs> <laughs> you don't think you could uh, pick out a particular uh, position on a football field or? Not that one. I don't know. Not, no. I can watch a football game, but I'm not, I'm not like the guys who know exactly what's coming. You know, <laughs> I'd have been shot. So yeah, the Germans created just terrible chaos, um, and you hear about guys who they get through a battle, they finally get some peace and quiet, um, they get all the tops of the trees off of them, they get to looking around, it's pouring down rain or sleet or snow, they're thousands of miles away from home, the, uh, they have a moment's peace, and they take a minute and realize their boot is extremely tight, so they make the mistake of removing their boots. And then their feet swell to the point where they can't get their shoes back on, their boots back on. Well, then you're in a situation where if you don't do something, you're going to lose your feet. So even if you didn't get wounded, it, this is just terrible stuff. You know, um, have you ever been camping in the cold? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, I convinced uh, some my brother and some other family to go um, in February. Um, camping on, in February? Camping in February up on the mountains where the Appalachian Trail comes through. And uh, that first night, it sleeted on us while we were setting up camp and the wind was blowing sideways. And yeah, I don't think I'll ever convince them to go camping with me in the wintertime ever again. Oh, man. And that was one, what, two nights? It's a couple nights. But after the first night, the weather actually ended up being pretty good. But that first night, it was miserable cold. Yeah. And so, I mean, just imagine that for a month and a half, for a month. Yeah. When the, well, these guys hadn't slept in a bed in a year to yeah. begin with. And just imagine, I mean, and the trees coming down on top of it. I mean, wow. So th these guys were tough. Absolutely. Tough. All right, where are we at? Bad weather. December 24th, Christmas Eve shows up. What happens? The weather begins to clear. Somebody makes a phone call or gets on a radio and says, get these planes in the air. Um, so... Uh, American, British, all these planes, when they take to the air, they've got two major objectives. Uh, one major objective is to uh, drop supplies to our boys. Socks, shoes, bullets, for one thing. I heard that if you had five bullets when this started, you didn't tell anybody because somebody's going to try to steal your... that nobody had a bullet. If you had two bullets, you were doing good when this whole thing began. Um, so supplies were a major issue. Uh, so they dropped those. They dropped food, hats, gloves, socks. But they also attack. 
um, these panzer divisions. Um, and that kind of puts an end to this piddly chaos that the Germans have created and gets this bulge. And I, I saw various numbers as to how far the bulge actually formed in the line. Did you get, did you get anything on that? Um, I did not. Okay. But that pushes them back. And all of a sudden, the bulge begins to go on a diet and suck back in. Um, so the weather, as in a lot of, and we can talk about this in later episodes, maybe if we get to them. But in warfare, uh, one major game changer is the weather. And that worked out for the Air Force for us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, at the same time, you know, General Eisenhower gave Patton uh, the Third Army, 230,000 troops, you yeah. know, around this same time period to go to Ardennes to push the Germans back. So not only are they getting resupplied, um, but and, and the Air Force is able to, or probably the Army Air Corps at this point, is able to, um, to fly, attack, perform reconnaissance. But, you know, they get a fresh, you know, massive influx of troops and tanks to, to, to push back on them. Yeah, and at that point, we've got a couple places that we'd be remiss if we didn't name them, but uh, at that point, you, the Germans go in reverse, and so towns like Foy, I believe that's in the west, um, get retaken by the Allies, uh, Elsenborn Ridge, Bastogne is a major, major pivot place here in the battle, uh, Bastogne's a major point of combat and turn here at the battle, so those are places where you see this, the total flip of the switch and all of a sudden the allies uh, push back and once that happens and the Germans realize they're not getting Antwerp the boys for the allies British uh, American the whole morale changes in fact they begin to in missions after Battle of the Bulge um, even some of their higher-ups start saying don't take chances because you're gonna get home if you if you if you play your cards right, you're going to actually get back to Iowa. <laughs> you know, you're going to get back to, to the States. Um, so there's a, if you've ever seen Band of Brothers uh, in one of the later episodes, they're supposed to cross a creek and, uh, and take something. They can't do it. And they're supposed to go another night. And uh, the guy, I forget his name, but the, the fellow in command, he just tells them, I'll let them know we tried again like, tonight, but we didn't get it. Everybody just go to bed. So once the Battle of the Bulge takes place, they start smelling that looks like this is going to happen. But you brought this up when we were talking about this episode. Then, at that point, it becomes a major discussion. Well, did we let the Soviets take Berlin? Did we take Berlin? Who takes Berlin? You know. Yeah. And that, that, that certainly um, becomes important. Um, but, you know, this, just as we, before we shift there... Um, so Allied forces claimed victory for the Battle of the Bulge, January 25th, 1945. Yeah. So that's, um, and they just continue their push on towards Berlin. Um, but all in all, the U.S. Department of Defense states that 1 million plus Allied troops, including 500,000 Americans, fought in the Battle of the Bulge. Wow. With approximately 19,000 soldiers killed in action... 47,500 wounded and 23,000 plus missing. I mean, you talked about all mm -hmm. the trees falling. and I mean, people were buried and never seen again. And about 100,000 Germans were killed, wounded, or captured. Wow. Um, but yeah, you get this push. You know, they continue this push towards Berlin. And 
and um, obviously our relationship with the Soviet Union was was tenuous at best. And uh, so then, yeah, you start to you start to wonder, you know, you start to have these open discussions about, you know, we don't want the Soviets to take Berlin before we get there. You know, uh, we're worried that maybe the Soviets will hurry up and rush the attempt so they can take it before we show up. Yeah. Um, and um, and so it, it's it's this big undertaking to to try to continue this push and to you know, to beat the Soviet Union there. Um, and so the, yeah, there's a lot of discussion around this. What do you think a World War Three would look like? <laughs> was it uh, was it Einstein who said uh, during the height of the Cold War that I don't I don't know. Um, with what weapons World War Three would be fought, but World War Four would be fought with sticks, sticks and, stones. and stones. Yeah, yeah. And I probably just butchered that quote, but yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. I I, I don't know. you know in a nuclear age, it's a little hard to fathom. Um, but I hope we don't find out. You're right. Yeah. You got anything else? think I'm good. You know, my favorite conflict is um, Gettysburg. I've been to Gettysburg uh, twice. I plan on going again sometime soon. Um, if you ever go to Gettysburg, you should go for, you should take five days, one to get there, then three to be there, and then one, you know, to get back and get rested up before you go back to work. Since it's a three-day battle, uh, it's, it's good to go and spend the first full day on the first day, you know, like that, on the first day of the battle and so on. But uh, yeah, Gettysburg would be my favorite. Uh, I think my all-time favorite. It's a, it's a special place up there. Since I can't get to some of these places in, where World War II was fought at, uh, that's my favorite. That's true. Uh, me and some buddies even stayed at the Cash Town Inn in uh, Cash Town about eight miles west of Gettysburg. And I can say it is haunted. So it made me a believer. So maybe there's some meat there for a future episode. <laughs> All, right. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for joining us, folks. Um, you can find us on pretty much any social media, if, if you're into that sort of thing, at WMUH Podcast. Um, so Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, etc. And um, we look forward to hearing from you if you have... Uh, Episode suggestions, uh, you can email those to us at wmuhpodcast at gmail.com. We uh, always look forward to hearing from our listeners. Um, and uh, please rate this on iTunes or uh, Stitcher or whatever platform you're listening to this on. Give us a rating. It's a great way to help folks find the show. And um, if you enjoyed this episode, share it with you know one other person that you think might also enjoy this topic. Anything else? That's it. Five-star rating. <laughs> All right. Thank you, folks. We look forward to joining you again next time for What Makes Us Human.